Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and that through your work of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I have a, a couple uh, FYIs for you this morning. Please ignore Bren as she's taking a few pictures. Um, I was interviewed for a, a podcast for the uh, Gendered Virtue Conference that I've been asked to speak at in, um, in April. And so I would like a couple live action shots, if you know what I'm saying. So I thought about like just posing like this. That was the suggestion made to me that I should just do that. So then Brent told me she's going to take like 5,000 pictures um, the whole time. So, uh, <laughs> Jeff said, that's how many it would take to get a good picture of me. I think he's projecting. <clears throat> uh, on, on the note of, of the conference, I, I hope you'll come. The price is not too steep, especially to get to hear uh, some speakers like Michael Clary, uh, Joe Rigney, Toby Sumter, and Michael Foster. I think it'll be a blessing to you, especially that topic I think is incredibly needed in our very vanilla, androgynous age that we live in. Second, FYIs, I have bronchitis, apparently, according to the urgent care doc, uh, so please ignore my coughing. I have some uh, prescription cough suppressants with me, but they make me drowsy. And so if you thought I was quite expressive in my preaching before, we don't really want to see what that would look like. So there you go. Third, FYI, um, I don't have a ton of application this morning. Um, my hope is that as, as we work through this, you will think through the implications of this for your life. How does that impact this part of my life? How does this impact this part of my life? There are great implications all, all over the place in here. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, the Lord does not um, put me in the place to do, to do that this morning. So here we go. All that out of the way now. The danger in preaching... Um, through any portion of any of the scriptures without maintaining a view of the whole 
is that you would lose the context or that you would lose, ultimately, if you lose the context, you lose the point of that particular passage. And so that's always the danger whenever we would say we will preach verse A through through Z, or A through G maybe, or verses 1 through 5, or in this case, verses 13 through 17. So as we come into verse 13, what I want to do is, is only back up into last week's sermon for just a second, because you have to bring it into the passage for this morning. You have to bring into this part of the chapter what we just talked about last week at least the main thrust of that passage. So John's point, if, if I could say John's point in Matthew chapter 3, verse or the beginning of last week, is wrapped up in verse 2, where John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of, he- of, of, of heaven is at hand. John was telling everyone, everyone, that the very kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Jesus himself, representative of the kingdom of heaven, has come. Now, why would the kingdom of heaven have to come to earth? Because ultimately, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth have been separated since the fall in Genesis 3. There was a, a great divide or a chasm between heaven and and earth, ultimately representing what? A chasm or a divide between God and man. Now, what was John's solution? So the, the kingdom of heaven is, hand, is at hand. What's the solution? Repent and be baptized. That's the solution. In other words, or to put that in, in, in some different vernacular, Agree with God and be cleansed. Agree with God and be cleansed. Agree with God, namely, that I, that we are sinners at odds with God, and my only hope is for him to cleanse me. Repent and be baptized. Now, who needs to, according to John, in the beginning of chapter 3? Everyone. Everyone is separated from God, and the solution for everyone is to repent to be baptized. He wasn't just saying this to Israel. He wasn't just saying this to the Pharisees, though he had special words for them. He was speaking to Israel, of course, but he was likening, and if you remember from Jeff last week in the beginning of the chapter, he was likening Israel to their Egyptian slaveholders, that you're pagan just like them. The point there is that John is, is not just saying, hey, Israel, you need to repent. But Israel needs to repent. Egypt needs to repent. All of you need to repent. Those kind of represent the whole of the world. God's people, Israel, and the pagans, they all need to repent alike. Everyone, repent and be baptized. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is coming upon us. All right, so you see this great gulf 
between heaven and earth. The solution, again, is repentance and cleansing. Repentance and cleansing. So carry that with us into this next portion. The story continues. John is, again, preaching this message, and now John is doing what? He's baptizing people. There are people who are repenting and are being baptized. They're listening to John. So John is now down by the water. And what happens as he's down by the water? Jesus approaches and says, hey, John, I want you to baptize me. How does John respond? No, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. John says, no, Jesus, we we can't do that. That would be wrong. We'd be switching places. No, Jesus, that would be putting me in your place and putting you in my place. We would be switching. We would be swapping. John is saying to Jesus, you have no need to repent and be baptized. I do. But Jesus says to him, how does Jesus respond? He says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, please baptize me. In order to fulfill all righteousness, please baptize me. And what does John do? He baptizes him. So see the whole story now. John saying, because of sin, there's this great divide between heaven and earth. What's the solution? Repent and be baptized. Jesus comes to John and says, I'll trade places with you, John. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. So carry that story into it. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. But Jesus answered to John, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What's he saying? Hey, John, baptize me now. Why? For it is fitting. It will fulfill all righteousness as we do so. Now, what was the righteousness that Jesus needed to fulfill that was being fulfilled in this moment? Well, what's crucial for us to do is to not change pace with what's been happening thus far in Matthew. Thus far in Matthew, there's been a whole bunch of the Old Testament says blank, and now Jesus is here to fulfill blank. The Old Testament says, prophesy, said Jesus will do this, and Matthew says, now Jesus is doing this. But you ask the question, well, but where does it say that Jesus will be baptized? Where is that at in the Old Testament? Where is that prophesied at? The, honestly, the Old Testament never says that Jesus will be baptized. Those words are not there. It doesn't, never says that that's what will happen. But we have to learn how to read our Bibles and lead our, read our Bibles well. The reality is this. The people of this earth, all of us, all that have ever been here, will ultimately go through a baptism. Every person that has ever lived, that will ever live, will go through a baptism. For some, it'll be a baptism that saves. 
And for others, it will be a baptism that judges and condemns. Why? Why is that the case? Because in the scriptures, baptism represents, in part, death. Baptism, in part, represents death. And back to the beginning, we talked about this separation between heaven and earth. Because of that separation, well, or why did that separation happen? Well, it happened because of our rebellion. And what does our rebellion against heaven deserve? Death. The fleshly, evil, God-hating self deserves death, and it will die. Period. Whether you're redeemed or not, that flesh will die. For some, it will be a death unto eternal life, and some will be a death unto eternal condemnation and wrath. Now what happens when something enters a cold body of water? What happens to us if you were just to go swim with no stop to the bottom of the pool? What would you do? You would die. Eventually your oxygen would run out. It becomes a grave. And what happens to those who look to heaven for mercy? They are brought back unto new life, new creation. The old man is gone. The new man is here. All right, so that's just a broad stroke, okay? Now hang with me for a second. In the Old Testament, how many of you can think of an example of baptism in the Old Testament? I'm going to give you three. Three examples of baptism from the Old Testament. The first one is this, Noah. The first one is Noah. The scriptures tell us that man had grown exceedingly wicked. Now how does God respond to it? He sends a flood to judge the earth. To bring wrath upon the exceedingly wicked earth. They will all die. They will go into a watery grave and face God's eternal condemnation and judgment forever. For some, it's the baptism unto death and God's wrath. For Noah, it was a baptism unto new life. For him and his family, new life. Who goes through this baptism? Everyone, including Noah and including his family. Again, for some, unto life. For some, it was unto death. Where do you, where do you, you say, okay, all right, so where do you get like unto new life? Just read Genesis 9, chapter 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's that a repetition of? The new life that is to be brought upon the earth by Adam and Eve. So Noah, who is the beginning of a new race, 
is to now, with his new life, bring new life upon the earth. Now, again, we know the, the ending of that story. Like, they go awry just like Adam and Eve. But nevertheless, new life, baptism unto new life. Next, you have Moses in the Nile. You have Moses in the river Nile. Pharaoh is fearing the growing population of the enslaved Israelites. So he sets out to kill all the newborn boys. To kill them all. What happens to Moses at this point? His parents put him in a ark and send him through the water where he is saved unto new life, right? Next, and probably equal in its grand display here to Noah and the ark, you have the Red Sea. You have the Red Sea. Now in this new life, Moses is sent back to Pharaoh to set Israel free. Now you got to connect these dots with me. Israel's enslavement is symbolic for their enslavement to sin. Their time in Egypt is symbolic to their time, their enslavement to sin. After the Passover, Pharaoh says finally, right, get out of here, leave. Right? Because Moses has come and said, this plague's coming, this plague's coming, this plague's coming, and so on and so forth. The climax is the Passover and the, the death of those who did not put the blood of the lamb across their door frame. So Pharaoh says, go, get out of here. So they take off. They get to the Red Sea. What happens at the Red Sea? God's people, led by Moses, look unto heaven for salvation. Trusting the Lord. What happens? Moses parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go into the cold, watery grave, exit the other side. The Egyptians pursue, looking unto themselves for salvation. They enter the cold, watery grave, and they do not exit. They go through baptism. All of them alike go through baptism. One unto life, one unto death. The baptism becomes the deathly grave for the Egyptians, and the baptism becomes the way unto salvation for God's people. So hopefully you see the picture. Death is required for all. Some will experience it for eternity. Under the wrath of God, some will be brought unto new life. Side note here, this is why I'm not a Presbyterian. Sprinkling in no way communicates this picture, for the record. Amen? Amen. All right. Even though we love many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. I believe the New Testament baptism, believer's baptism, is more of a reflection of these realities and such. All right, off the side note. So John, right, so those are Old Testament examples. John commands all to repent and be baptized, not just Israel, but especially Israel. And Jesus comes at this point in chapter 3 and says, John, I will step into their place. 
I will repent for them. I will go into the watery grave for them. I will switch places. I will be the one to go under the wrath of God for them. Listen, this picture was foretold, just not in these explicit terms. That's why we reviewed baptism in the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling those pictures. That's the baptism that Jesus walks through. Now, a question I think we should ask at this point is how can he do so? How can Jesus do so? Again, we're still underneath this Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Let us do this to fulfill all righteousness. How can, how can we switch places with Jesus? How can he go into the watery grave with our sin and not be swallowed up completely by God's wrath? As the scripture, scriptures teach us, Jesus was sinless. He had no sins of his own for which to atone. He lived perfectly obedient to God's law. He doesn't destroy God's law, but he utterly fulfills God's law. So as he goes into the grave, he had no sins of his own to atone for, only our sins. We'll pick back up on that in just a minute. But what happens, so so Jesus says, I'll switch, I'm going to switch places with you, John. This is fitting. He switches places, and John baptizes Jesus. What happens on the other side of that picture? Like Noah sending the dove, which discovers dry land, the Spirit of God, like a dove, descends upon Jesus with these words, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen, you can't miss Matthew's incredible use of language at this point. Read with me in Genesis chapter 8, and you can fill in the context later, but in verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, and the dove came back to Noah in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. What's so significant about this with Noah? All the evil of the earth had been destroyed. The dove is sent out, and the dove returning with an olive leaf is saying to Noah and to us, there is land for you to live. There is land for you to live, Noah. There is new life for you to have, Noah. You have made it through the baptism. There is life for you, Noah. Jesus goes through the flood And on the other side, the Spirit of God, like a dove. That's why Matthew says that. That's why he references, he doesn't just, oh, this would make a great Hobby Lobby sign, right? Like a dove, it comes down upon Jesus, and everyone gets confused. Was there actually a dove? No, there wasn't actually a dove. 
He says, like a dove. Like a dove. Why? why like, oh, the Spirit just is soothing and graceful and kind and just kind of floats down and sets upon Jesus and there's like a, a glowing, cute little white dove. Is that what he means by like a dove? No, he means like Noah went through the flood and has been born unto new life, Jesus has gone through the flood and has come upon new life. That's the point. That the Spirit has come upon Jesus unto new life. So here's the picture. All the world must repent and be cleansed. This great separation And Jesus says, I'll take their place. I'll swap places. John, you can take my upstanding perfection, my moral perfection, and I will take your deep rebellion. Jesus goes into the watery grave. But the grave cannot hold him. And in epic scene, he comes out of the grave and God sends his grand approval upon him. Does that sound like anything else you've seen in Scripture? Sure, it does. It's the cross, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus being foretold right here in the baptism of Christ. John, I'll take your place. God will put your sins upon me, Israel's sins upon me. I'll go under the wrath of God. I'll be baptized. I'll come out on the other side with it all wiped away. And God will be pleased. He will resurrect me unto life, and he will be pleased. So Jesus comes, and his baptism fulfills all righteousness. That's the the picture. That's why when Jesus uh, is, again, foretelling or foreshadowing where at the cross where he can say, it is finished. It's done. I've paid all of it. I have fulfilled all the righteousness. That's the picture being painted for us here in the beginning of Matthew. Next, I want you to see that Jesus proclaims God's wrath with his baptism. Jesus proclaims God's wrath with his baptism. If you didn't pick up on this in the first point, let me make it explicit. Baptism is not just a sign of God's salvation, but it is also always a sign of God's judgment as well. Remember, all will die. Some will face death as the eternal enjoyment of God's wrath, and some will face death as the eternal enjoyment of God's mercy unto new life. Again, back to Noah. All but Noah and his family who trusted in the Lord faced the eternal enjoyment of God's wrath that he gave them through the means of a watery baptism. Moses, 
Same thing, the Egyptians, as they raced headlong into rebellion in an act to destroy God's people, faced the internal enjoyment of God's wrath that he gave them. John makes this picture clear to us in the baptism scene. I'm sorry, in in the scene last week that Jeff preached on. Look at verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. And, and if you're not, if at this point, like, you pause right there. If you're not like, okay, what's he mean by, what's he mean by fire? Like, that just sounds really powerful, and that's a really cool baptism. What's the next words? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is going to baptize in a way that will baptize everyone, right? Some will be baptized, the Holy Spirit and unto life, some will be baptized with fire. Now, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. They'll, they'll be baptized with fire unto this unquenchable fire. But without getting too far ahead of myself, he takes the fire for us. Because we deserve that part. But Jesus is going into, at this point, the water baptism of John. But then Jesus is going to come and baptize with fire. Some will have the dross burned away unto new life. And some will be baptized with fire unto an unquenchable death. Jesus' baptism shows us that God's wrath is coming upon those who will not turn to him for repentance and cleansing. So whenever we think about baptism, so the next time we baptize someone, right, and we, we believe it's a symbol and so on and so forth, but what's it a symbol of? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and this person has been death, buried, and resurrected now with Christ. What does it also picture? That when Jesus went through, that he took the fire for that person. That there was judgment that happened in that baptism. And that there is judgment that awaits those who do not likewise repent. Listen, this is the part of baptism that rarely gets preached. God's wrath is also proclaimed in baptism. Listen, the people of God can rest. The evil people in our world, the evil leaders particularly, if they do not repent and look to heaven for salvation, they will enjoy God's baptism of fire for all eternity. Those who would seek to groom our children into evil will enjoy God's baptism of fire for all of eternity. But the same is true for us in this room. 
there's any of us that would not repent and look unto Christ for salvation, we too will enjoy God's unquenchable, fiery baptism for endless days. It stands as a warning for each one of us as much as it does for the world around us. Jesus proclaims God's wrath in his baptism. Next, Jesus identifies with us in his baptism. Jesus identifies with us. Certainly, Jesus does not say, hey, John, I need to go be baptized so I can identify with you, man. But that's how, but, but Matthew masterfully makes this point. That's the point that Matthew is communicating when John is saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And then Jesus saying, I will stand in your place, John, and you can stand in mine. That's the point of the picture. That's why John doesn't just go, oh, this must be Jesus. Okay, I'll do whatever you say. Why does he speak at that moment? Because Matthew is drawing out for us that John is recognizing that this is not the way this is supposed to be. I'm the one that deserves to repent And be baptized, not you, Jesus. Now remember, Jesus' baptism here, carrying in the beginning of chapter 3, with John's baptism is a baptism to repent and be baptized. And he's saying, you, Israel, are just like the pagans in Egypt, all of you. Jesus' grand display here It's him saying, I'll be those people. I'll identify with them. I'll stand in their place. Listen, John's baptism of Jesus is a thorough identification of Christ with sin and sinners. Jesus is saying, I'll be one of them. But John's point, you got to get both sides here. John's saying, but you don't deserve to do this, Jesus. You haven't sinned. That's the point. You haven't sinned. You have no need to repent. You have no need to be baptized. I do. Israel does. The pagans in Egypt do. Everyone but you, Jesus. But Jesus says, I'll be that. My my prayer for you this morning is that 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 would hit you upside the head like a ton of bricks. That the perfect son of God would identify himself with you and I, a deeply rebellious people. And if that, if that doesn't strike you with a brick upside the head, then one of the following statements are probably true. 
Either you don't know how holy Christ is. That for him to take one stain upon his back. The holy son of God. Either you don't know how holy Christ is. And or you don't know how sinful you are. And I am. And yet Jesus says to John, I will put your sins on my back. I will go down into the grave. And so he does. Next point. Next thing I want you to see. That in this act, Jesus perfectly confesses and repents for us. Jesus perfectly confesses and repents for us. My, uh, my dear friend Mitch, preaching on this same passage, preached an entire sermon on this point. So if you want a better explanation, go listen to his sermon. Uh, I'm already running short on time. But this, this particular point, probably for me personally, stood out the most and had the biggest impact on my own soul. Jesus perfectly confesses and repents for us. All right, so go back to the overarching story. John protests Jesus wanting to be baptized. That wouldn't make any sense, Jesus. It wouldn't make any sense. Why does a man without sin need to be baptized for sinners? How do those two things go together? How do we fit this together? When you have time later this week, go to Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to read for you just verse 1. Isaiah 42. I believe that Matthew here has Isaiah 42 in his head, specifically verse 1. We know that Matthew has 42 in his head, at least at some point as he's writing the Gospel of Matthew, because he quotes word by word verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of, of Isaiah 42 later in Matthew chapter 12. Okay? So Matthew clearly is familiar with Isaiah, if that hasn't been shown already, all right? But specifically 42, he definitely has in his head. Let me read verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now note, note the language the parallels in language here between 42 verse 1 and what we just read in chapter 3. You hear my beloved son. My beloved son. You see my spirit upon him. You see this, he will bring justice. There is, there is a, the, to, to see that, you see in, in the beginning of chapter 3, the, the proclamation about Israel is that they are unjust like Egypt. And Jesus comes and, and deals with that 
in his baptism. That's the picture being painted. You also see this, my, whom my soul delights. What's he say in Matthew? I am well pleased. You see this parallel language. So I think 42 is in the, in the head of Matthew as he's writing chapter 3. And this baptism, he's retelling the story of Jesus at the baptism. Now, I need you to put two things together, right? So, so follow the train of thought here. I need you to put two things together. In Isaiah, you have this phrase, behold my servant. Now, as, as Matthew, or as, sorry, as, as the prophet Isaiah talks about servant, 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 you'll see this multiple times in the book of Isaiah. No one agrees on who the servant is. Is this a foretelling of Jesus? Is the servant referring to Jesus? Or is the servant referring to Israel? Is the servant referring to Jesus? Or is it referring to God's people, Israel? That's one point. Hold that dot right there. The second dot, John is rebuking Israel, right? Chapter 3. We've said this many times already. John is rebuking Israel. John understands, I shouldn't be doing the baptism. Jesus, you need to baptize me. In other words, like, Jesus, uh, you're the servant, and I need to be baptized by you. But what does Jesus say? No, I'm going to identify with Israel, the people. I'm going to be the people, and you baptize me. So the the question is, is in Isaiah, is the servant Jesus or is it people? I want to propose to you, it's both. It's both in Isaiah. It's it's purposefully ambiguous because Isaiah is communicating that when Jesus comes, Jesus is going to be both the servant Jesus, and he will be Israel. That when he goes down into the water, he doesn't cease to be Jesus. But when he goes into the water, he goes in as the seed of Abraham, true Israel, true, obedient, faithful, beloved Israel. He goes in as both. He is both. Now, again, you got to reach back with me to last week. So Jesus goes into the water as both Jesus and perfect Israel into a baptism of what? Right? So he goes into the water as Jesus and Israel enacting what? This is the beginning of chapter 3 of repentance and baptism. Repentance and baptism. This is crucial. We are familiar with Jesus being our righteousness, right? I hope so. We are familiar with Jesus being our wrath absorber, right? He took all the wrath on the cross for us. But if this is a baptism of repentance, Jesus at this moment, because he is both Jesus and Israel, he is also our perfect repentance. He is our perfect 
act of repentance. Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance, but you do. I do. Now, why is this so important? Why, why would I belabor this? Why is a couple reasons? I think there's more than this, but a couple reasons for sure. You and I could never, first one, you and I could never fully and completely repent. You and I could never fully and completely repent. Blanket repentance statements are just stupid, by the way. Well, God, just please forgive me for everything that I've ever, that's hogwash. But you and I could never fully, even in the best of repentance, you've sinned, you know it. You confess the fruit of the sin. You confess the root of the sin that gave birth to it, the the desires that gave birth to it. It is still likely that you have missed something. You missed some aspect that you need to repent for. But who are those who are saved? Those who are repent, right? But Jesus fulfills all righteousness, even in the act of perfectly repenting for you and for me. My question for you and that point is, do you trust God even with your repentance? I think many of us, we got this down. I'm going to trust God with the forgiveness. Now, he'll forgive me if I repent, which is true 100%. Absolutely. Amen. He's faithful and just to forgive But do you trust him with the very act of repentance? God, I have sinned. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And the walking of that out. Do you trust him that even that act of initial confessing of our sins, that Jesus did that for you and for me perfectly? That even in that act of repentance, you will fail. But Jesus didn't. Or do you trust in your, even in your act of repentance as a means of self-righteousness? Some of us should repent at this point. We should repent of trusting in our repentance as a means of self-righteousness. Jesus was perfectly that for you. You know, that means that even in our pursuit of righteousness, beginning with the act of repentance, we will still fail there. But Jesus is still sufficient for us there. 
in that moment. Second reason this is important, this should spur you to repent freely and motivated out of love for Christ. This should spur you on to repent freely and out of love for Christ. Before I explain this point a little bit further, let me give you the, the negative of it. If you are thinking, then why do I need to repent? Then you've already got it all wrong. Remember, he who has been forgiven much loves much. So even if I've been forgiven in my, of my insufficient repentance, it should spur me to love him even more, which should drive further faithfulness. But how often is our repentance, though, motivated simply by self-love? How often is our repentance motivated simply by self-love? Well, I really hope for better circumstances here. I better repent, right? I really don't want to you know, face any more consequences or to put in our you know, kind of cheaper language. Um, I don't want to keep relearning this lesson, right? So I'm going to go ahead and repent now to avoid that. I'm not saying that that's unwise, like you should certainly try to avoid further learning of the same lesson, not like the fool and keep repeating it. But, but ultimately, there's a measure of self-love in that. But if Jesus has already done all the repentance that is needed for his elect, then you and I get to repent out of gratitude and love returned to him. Jesus perfectly confesses and repents for us. My last point for this morning is that Jesus restores heaven and earth. Jesus restores heaven and earth. All right, remember where we began today? There's this great divide, this great chasm between heaven and earth, between man and God. Man has rebelled against God, and God's judgment is coming upon the earth. This is the fiery baptism that John is speaking of when he is saying, hey, Jesus is coming, but he's going to baptize with fire, right? There's this great divide, but God's going to reconcile that whole issue. Jesus here in the grand display of substitution, substitutionary atonement is the fancy word we use. It's what's on display in the baptism. Him taking our place and him giving us his place. He walks as Jesus and us into the watery grave, yet the grave cannot hold him, and he emerges out on the other side. And what happens at this moment? What happens? You remember in the picture? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, what happens here? The heavens were opened to him. The heavens, the heavens that had been closed off to the earth. The heavens have now been opened to him. They were opened. The heavens that were shut off to the people of earth have now opened up. What's this a picture of? It is a glimmer of what will one day be fully realized. 
that there will be no longer a divide between the two. One day, the divide between heaven and earth will be no more. God will dwell with his people, and we with our God. And heaven and earth will be one place, with all the rebels and pagans cast into an eternal, fiery baptism. And we, who in Christ go into that fire, emerge on the other side, because Jesus took it all for us. You see, the glimmer of that reality right here in Matthew chapter 3. The heaven opened and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. What a marvelous sight and a marvelous and grand picture. So, so when, when John says the kingdom of heaven is upon you, see what, see what he's pointing at? I mean, John at this moment doesn't know that Jesus is right around the corner or right around the tree, you know, getting ready to pop out. Like, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. What happens now? Jesus is baptized, and the kingdom of heaven descends. This divide is shrinking. In what context? The Son of God going under the wrath of God to pay for the sins of his people. That's the context in which the Heavens open. My encouragement to you, there's so much application you could do with, with many of these things, but one simple application would be don't lose hope. If this is a glimmer of what is to come, heavens opening up to the earth, the chasm being dealt with, don't lose hope. Though the days after this, bapti this baptism of Jesus will be dark, the heavens are beginning to collide with the earth. Again, as John began this whole section, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Literally, heaven is coming down upon us, and where it goes, the glory of God reigns. And so, things like when you are parenting your child through a dark moment, don't forget, God is restoring heaven and earth. When you're having hard conversations with your friends, spouse, coworkers, church friends, and so on, don't forget, God is restoring heaven and earth. And each little act of obedience to our king is another stone placed on the wall of his kingdom. So Jesus comes to John and says, John, I will take his place. I'll take her place. I'll take your place. I'll go into the watery grave. And Jesus does. And he comes out on the other side unto new life, residing in God's deep, lasting approval of his son. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you left for us sinners in our redemption not one place that would be left up to us 
Left up to us to mess it up. Left up to us to, to not fully live obediently to your law and thus be condemned forever. But for those whose hearts are turned towards heaven and trust, trust what you have said and what you have done, even our very act of trusting, confessing, repenting was faithfully done by your son Jesus. Father, if we believed that there was some way that through legalistic measures we could save ourselves, for some of us, that little bit of legalism was left residing in the act of repentance. Well, at least there I can claim some sort of glory unto my name, some sort of, some sort of credit unto my name. Well, I repented. Even there we are left reminded that our repentance even is insufficient. But Jesus faithfully repented for us. Father, let that spur in us a love, a freedom to repent, a love for your son, gratitude for him. Father, help us to proclaim this good news to those that are around us, whether they're in our own home, people we work with, even our enemies. Father, I ask that you'd help us to believe such things, Father, by faith. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.